Father, thank you for our resurrected Savior. Thank you that no one can be against us when you're for us. Thank you that the Son of Jesus has risen on each of us. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving each of us. As we seek you in your word tonight, I pray, God, that you would allow us to hear your voice, that you would allow us to glean from these rich fields the things you would have for us. I pray that in all things you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 18. Uh, last week, we looked at the amazing account of God's deliverance of Israel through David as he slayed the giant, Goliath. This week, we're going to see the aftermath. See, so it was kind of good that I didn't get to chapter 18 last week, because um, 18 and 19 go well together. So what we're going to see, though, is we're going to see what happens when a person turns their back on God. Then they lose all sound judgment. They make terrible decisions. Saul turned his back on God, and we will see the foolish actions that Saul takes. Now, we've talked about this a little bit before, but as a result of this, Saul and David become a picture of Satan and Jesus. Let me explain. Jesus is the rightful king of the earth. He has purchased the world for himself by his death and resurrection. It's actually where we get the interpretation of the parable of the pearl of great price and the parable of the treasure in the field. We are the treasure. We are the pearl. Jesus is the man who gave everything to purchase the field so he could get the treasure. He purchased the world so he could get us. However, Satan doesn't want to give up the world. The Bible calls him the God of this age. And boy, he, he doesn't want to give up his throne and give it back to the rightful person, Jesus. So he's doing everything he can to prevent that. In Revelation chapter 19, we see Satan's ultimate failure when Jesus returns and he gets chained for a thousand years, then he's let out for a little while, and then he's cast into the lake of fire. So I, I don't know exactly what Satan's going to think he's going to accomplish. At this point in time, it is just pettiness. He's like, fine, I'm going to hell. I'm going to see how many I can take with me. You know, it's just pettiness. He, he knows he's lost. So how do I compare this here? Well, David is the rightful king of Israel. And Saul is doing everything in his power to hold on to his power, even though God has chosen another. And we're going to see this a little more later in 2 Samuel, that Jesus will actually be sitting on the throne of David, which is so cool. Saul is going to lose to God's chosen anointed. The devil has already lost to God's chosen, chosen, chosen. Sweetly, to God's chosen anointed Jesus, our enemy knows he's lost, but he's trying to hold on to what is no longer his. Thankfully, Jesus is not going to let him. And by the way, this concludes you and I. Because our enemy wants us back in his kingdom of darkness. But Jesus, our Savior, holds us firmly in his kingdom of light. 
So with all that, I was about to say Acts. 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1. Now, when he had finished speaking, so remember, <laughs> I got real far, didn't I? Remember at the end of chapter 17, uh, Saul had a bit of a brain hiccup, as it were. Um, he didn't know who David was. He didn't know whose son he was. He asks Abner about this, right? He knew who David was. He knew whose son David was. And uh, we, we talked about that last week. Um, so when he had finished speaking to Saul, this is speaking of David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So we see this wonderful friendship between Jonathan and David. Jonathan loved David or had affection for David as he did his own soul. And you have to remember, Jonathan had his own victories on the field of battle against the Philistines. But this is what's really happening. Jonathan recognized who David was meant to be and honored him as such. There are those who want to tarnish this friendship. Those who try to find a place in Scripture to justify the sin of homosexuality. And they say, see, David and Jonathan had a homosexual relationship. Jonathan loved him. Um, that's not what it says. That's not what it says at all. Not even a little bit. There's nothing in Hebrew. There's nothing in any English translation you'll find, unless it's been grossly misinterpreted, that even kind of suggests that. But what I want to mention, and I'm going to go back to this, is that everything Jonathan gave him shows that he recognized David as a new king. So when he took off his robe, you remember Joseph in his multicolored robe? That was to indicate that he was his father's chosen to inherit the lion's share. This would have been the kind of robe Jonathan would have had. He was Saul's oldest son. He would have stood to inherit the kingdom. But he took that off and gave it to David. His armor and his sword shows his utter submission to David's authority as the king. And again, he would have had, if you remember back, there was a time when only Saul and Jonathan had a sword. So this is a big deal to give this to David. And then his bow and his belt. He left himself utterly defenseless because he trusted David as the rightful king of Israel. Um, Saul is not going to respond well to that here. As we're about to find out. Verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul sent him over the men of war, or set him over the men of war, sorry. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they danced, Saul has slain his thousands 
And you know, at the first line of this song, Saul was like, that's right, I have. David's slain his tens of thousands. Huh? What was the second line of your song? Verse 8, Saul was angry, very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So David eyed Saul from that day forward. So David continues to serve Saul faithfully. Saul slaying thousands came from Jonathan's victory over the Philistines, if you remember a few chapters back. Jonathan is the one who led that campaign. But Saul took credit for it. And they started singing, Saul has slain his thousands. But now, because David, of course, under the power of God, slayed Goliath and led Israel's troops into battle, slaughtering many of the Philistines, well, now he gets ascribed a few more. Saul is upset that David is ascribed more than he is, even though he stole credit for the first part anyway. Something to think about. So, something snaps in Saul here. He believes David's going to take the kingdom from him, and he eyed him. Uh, That phrase, he eyed him, uh, literally means looked on him suspiciously from then on. It would appear that Saul is now recognizing that David is the one God has chosen to replace him. Verse 10. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from Saul or from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. So Saul goes off his rocker. Now, this idea that he prophesied when the distressing spirit came upon him, because we're going to see more prophecy a little later on. Um, But this word for prophecy is different. This is not the word for prophecy that meant that he was giving a word from the Lord. This is babbling in anger or screaming. So he's in there. He's babbling. He's screaming. Calls David in. David comes in, sits down to play the harp. And Saul goes, I got a spear right here. And he chucks it at David. I'm like, dude, that's not nice. But apparently... This happened twice because it said David escaped him twice. Now, David is wise, right? Because Saul recognizes that the Lord had departed from him and is now with David. So he makes David captain of a thousand men. And David has great success at this. And as David behaves wisely, Saul becomes more and more afraid of him while the people love him. I find that fascinating. We're going to find out here in in actually just a few minutes um, that the biggest reason Saul kept sending David out to battle is that he was hoping he would die. 
But as we sang a couple different times tonight, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 17. And now we enter one of the grossest parts of the Old Testament. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hands of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my life or my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the, the, the Maholathite, as a wife. That's not right. Now, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. I love verse 21. So Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. He had a really high opinion of his daughter, didn't he? Right? She loved David. David loved her. David was supposed to marry the older daughter, but Saul messed that up. And he goes, this is a great idea. I know what a pain in the rear Michael is. Yeah, marry her. This will be great. And then the Philistines will kill you. So Saul commanded his servants, verse 22, communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king has delight in you and all the servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words in the hearing of David. And David said, does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law? Seeing I am poor and lightly esteemed man. Basically what he's saying is, I, I don't have the dowry to give for a king's daughter. And the servants of Saul told him, saying, in this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry, but 100 foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. I love this, right? Saul's got a plan. First, I'm, yeah, I'm going to give him this girl his wife, but she's going to be a pain in his side or his rear or whatever you want to say. And, oh, he doesn't have a dowry? Oh, I've got a great idea. Go circumcise 100 men. Right? What's his plan? That the Philistines will kill him. So when the servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now, now the days had not expired. Therefore, David arose and went, he and his men, and he killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him, Michael, his daughter as wife. I am just buggered by this. I mean, I get what Saul is trying to do. Saul is, he's figuring, you know, if, if somebody came after me in that way, I'd fight pretty hard. Just saying. Um, and of course, David, I think it was a bit of a mercy by killing them before he circumcised all of them. But whatever the case... When this comes back to David, he goes, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> and he grabs his guys and says, all right, we got a mission. Now, you got to picture how loyal his guys were. His boys are like, we got to go circumcise 100 Philistines. All right, David, we'll go with you. Uh-uh. Just, no. Um, but we have to note David's humility. In Psalm 110, verse 17, David wrote, 
Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart, and you will cause your ear to hear. But David's humility is beautiful. He knows that he is the next king of Israel. He knows this. Yet when Saul tries to kill him with a spear, he goes back in, and Saul does it again. He knows Saul's trying to kill him. And Saul sends him out against the Philistines, hoping he'll die, but he doesn't die. So he still knows Saul is trying to kill him. Supposed to marry the older daughter. That was one of his rewards for killing Goliath. Saul does him dirty on that. Says, you can have my younger daughter because, you know, she's a pain. So you can marry her. But David, again, humble. I, I can't give the king a dowry. I don't deserve this. He's saying this about the man who has repeatedly tried to murder him. Then, when they come back, go get us 100 foreskins, he goes, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go get 200. And he del- How do you carry that in to the throne room of the king? I mean, do you got, a, you got like a Walmart bag? Do you got a pillowcase? I mean, what exactly? A wooden bucket? But whatever the case, can I... So this is what I picture. I want to know the look on Saul's face. When David came in to the throne room covered in Philistine blood with a wooden bucket with 200 foreskins in it. And then it says they had the count in full. Somebody counted them in front of the king. I said one of the grossest things in the Bible. I'm just throwing it out there. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, his wife. Then Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David, so Saul became David's enemy. Continuing. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. So basically, Saul understands that his daughter actually loves him. Um, That love fades over time, and we'll see that a little later on. Um, But for now, they're in love. David, uh, Saul becomes his continual enemy, but David continues to serve Saul. That's how he behaved more and more wisely, because the more he fought for Israel... And the more he was victorious for Israel, the more the Israelites looked at him and went, I like this guy. Chapter 19, verse 1 through 8. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. Well, that escalated quickly. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father, Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore. 
as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as times passed. So straight up, Saul determines he's going to kill David. Jonathan finds out, goes and tells David, say, hey, you, you need to hide. My dad's planning to kill you. I'm going to try to figure out what's going on. So Jonathan goes to talk with his dad and goes, what are you doing? God is using this kid to deliver Israel. Um, he's done nothing but serve you. He has done nothing to sin against you, so why would you sin against innocent blood? And for a brief moment, Saul has some clarity. And he goes, yeah, you know what, Jonathan? I think you're right. I don't, I'm not sure that I should be killing this kid. I think you're right. And then in verse 8, or so they bring David into Saul's presence again. And then in verse 8, and there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. David is just the man. You know, I'm just saying, say you have a job, and for the last several weeks, your boss keeps throwing things at you, trying to kill you. And then your boss tells all your coworkers that if they have the opportunity, they should kill you. Then the assistant manager steps up and goes, um, this is a bad idea. And the boss goes, okay. And then you just go back to work the next day like nothing happened. This is exactly what David's doing. This either shows um, that he believed Saul, or more importantly, that he believed God. So in spite of Saul's threats, David goes out to war for him and defeats the Philistines on his behalf. And this added to the problem. Because as God used David, Saul became more and more jealous. And then Saul opened himself up to the work of the enemy. And, and we all have to be careful of this. The issue is not that we would lose our salvation or that we as Christians could ever be possessed by a demon. That's not the issue. But that we would give the enemy an opportunity to wreak havoc in our lives. In 1 Timothy 5, 14 and 15, we read, Give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. Right? Don't, don't give him an opportunity. We talked about this a little bit on Sunday, about moving that line. Right? Don't see how close you can get to the line. Instead, move the line and just don't get close to it. Because maybe you don't step over, but if you get close enough to that line, you're giving the enemy a chance to reach over. Right? And again, I'm not talking about losing your salvation, because I don't think you can lose your salvation. <laughs> and I'm not talking about, um, you know, being possessed. But the devil, he doesn't even care if you lose your salvation. If he can ruin your day or a week or a month or a year, or he can ruin a marriage or a friendship or a job. If he can ruin anything, he'll be happy. He just likes to ruin things. He's a bit of a jerk like that. Not a bit. He's a big jerk. <laughs> As Gemma once said, if I ever see Satan, I'm going to punch him in the face. Of course, she was four at the time. But still, the sentiment is there. And so, verse 9 what happens? Verse 7, or verse 6, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Verse 9, The distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. 
That should probably be your first clue not to go in that room. And David was playing music with his hand, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. What well, his promise to not kill David lasted four verses. But David, um, he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall, so David fled and escaped that night. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him and kill him in the morning. Nice guy. Um, and Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you're going to be dead. Tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. Wow, I lost my place. Oh, verse 13. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with his clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come, or when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for the head. And Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Nioth. Now it was told Saul, saying, take note, David is at Nioth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. So he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Indeed, they are at Naoth and Ramah. So he went there to Naoth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel like in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore they say, Is Saul also among the prophets. Huh. This is fun. So, I promise I'm not going to kill you, David. Spear. In the wall. David runs home. Sends messengers. As soon as he comes out the door in the morning, kill him. Michael goes, um, you best get out. So after making this problem, he quickly goes back on his oath, and he ultimately tries to kill David three times in the rest of this chapter. First, when the distressing spirit came upon him, he, he throws the spear at him, but David escapes. Second, Saul seeks to kill David at home, but with the help of his wife, he escapes. And she sets up an image, and so all I can picture is she laid out a few pillows and took this goat's hair thing and put it on top. Uh, apparently David had hair that looked like goat's hair, <laughs> you know, to the untrained eye. Um, and he doesn't come out in the morning. So they go home and they go back to Saul. He didn't come out. Well, go, go find out what's going on. So they go and they say, well, we need to get him. Oh, he's sick. So they go tell Saul he's sick. He goes, fine, pick up the bed, carry it up here so I can kill him. I think Saul's going a little cuckoo bananas. Um, when it's finally revealed what happened, Saul goes down and, and looks at his daughter and goes, why did you do this? Why? And she lies. 
Now, we've talked about this at a couple times in the past. Lying is always wrong. And I think, um, typically, we have the opportunity we could trust the Lord instead of lie. But, on multiple occasions in Scripture, we see someone lie in order to save a life. And so I think the case can be made that if it's in order to save a life, uh, you, can, you can bend the truth. I'm not suggesting you go around doing that. Uh, I'm not saving lives. Go around and save lives as much as you can. Um, but you don't need to go around lying all the time. Um, but I think a case can be made for that. And we, we talked about that when we were back in Exodus. Uh, this becomes uh, the background to Psalm 59. So I turned there. Uh, and, and the intro to it says, To the chief musician set to do not destroy a victim of David, when Saul sent men, and they watched his house in order to kill him. Verse 1, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me. And behold, you therefore, O Lord God of the hosts, the God of Israel, awake and punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressor. And it goes on from there. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting that at some point in time, David was thinking about this incident. And he goes, you know, I think I'm going to write a song about that. And we got Psalm 59. So David flees to Samuel at Ramah. And they go together to Nioth. Nioth was the school of the prophets in Ramah. Um, and we, we talked about this before. It's very possible that David attended a school like this. Because what they would do is train prophets to sing portions of scripture to share with the people and they would travel around in circuits and this was one of the schools apparently where they did that so Saul sends messengers to kill David and he does this three times and all three groups end up prophesying Saul finally goes himself and ends up prophesying naked making the people wonder if he's a prophet now this word for prophesying is is different than the one we talked about earlier that was that was angry babbling or screaming. This is actually the word for prophecy, the way we think of it. The Spirit of God was so powerful and so strong in that place that walking up, you became overwhelmed. Right? Now notice they're not knocking people over or anything like that, but they're becoming so engrossed in the Spirit of God that they begin to prophesy. Three different groups. Finally, Saul goes down there. Now, I do want you to note something. Um, at no place do we see God commanding Saul to strip down naked. At no place do we, we, we don't see that at all. So I'm kind of thinking the strip down naked part was just part of Saul's deteriorating mental state. Um, but it's also very cool because in a very practical way, the Holy Spirit protected David from Saul. Right? This group came down to, to arrest or kill him. They get filled with the Holy Spirit, start prophesying, they don't arrest and kill David. Second group, same thing. Third group, same thing. Finally, Saul goes down, same thing. In all three instances, this whole, the Holy Spirit is doing this amazing thing to protect David. So I want you to remember something. When Saul became king, 
There were men whose hearts had been touched by God to follow Saul. Um, ultimately, David became the best among Saul's followers. He was constantly devoted and faithful, even as Saul was trying to kill him over and over and over again. I mean, we have in these two chapters five attempts on David's life by Saul. And we don't know the time period. It could have been a week, it could have been a month, but five attempts on David's life. One of Saul's many mistakes was to make an enemy of a godly friend. And I've seen this happen multiple times, especially when a godly friend confronts sin in someone's life. And we're going to see this more and more as we move forward with Saul and David. We will also see Jonathan's loyalty to David over his father. Um, but it's just incredible to me that Saul had this guy who was literally willing to die for him. Imagine what the remainder of his rule could have been like if he had accepted David, if he had accepted God's call on his life, if he knew David was going to replace him. And instead of trying to kill him, he used the fact that David was filled with the Spirit of God and every time he went out, he had victory, right? Saul could have finished well. He didn't. It's sad. It's another example of somebody who fell short of the potential that God placed in them. I want to note one more thing. Next week, when we get into chapter 19, David flees from Saul. And we're going to see now over the next group of chapters leading us to the end of the book that there are times David does really well and there are times David does not. There are times when he has great trust in God, and there are times when he, I mean, eventually we're going to get to the place where he pretends to be insane and starts drooling on his own beard to get a Philistine king not to kill him. I'm not thinking that was his best moment. Right? And this is all after he killed Goliath. So he knows what God is capable of. At the end of chapter 19, God protects him. But we see multiple times where David makes mistakes, where David falls, where David has a lapse of faith. Nevertheless, God calls David a man after his own heart. That brings me a tremendous amount of comfort and encouragement. Uh, one of the things I love so much about the Bible is the Bible is honest with us and tells us that God doesn't use perfect people. And that encourages me because that means God can use me in spite of my failures. And he's going to work in me to transform me more and more into the image of Jesus. I praise him for this. But I, I think it's wonderful. There's a lot of religious books associated with many of the false religions in the world. And if you read them, I don't suggest it. But if you do, they never speak ill of the major people, characters, players, however you want to put it, in those books. They're always perfect. David is the man that God chose for his descendants to bring Jesus into the world. And he's a man who has severe lapses of faith, 
We're eventually going to see him commit adultery and commit murder and take a census when he's not supposed to and tens of thousands of Israelites die. When his son Absalom rebels, he abandons his kingdom. When his son Absalom is killed, he's more upset about Absalom being killed than all the men who died and gave their lives and fought on his behalf. I mean, we're going to see David blow it a lot. But remember, God doesn't look on the outside. He looks at the heart. And he saw in David's heart a man who was severely imperfect, just like me, like most of you, except my wife. Practically perfect in every way. She's Mary Poppins. And he looked at his heart and said, yeah, he's going to make a lot of mistakes and it's going to hurt my people. But ultimately, he's going to follow me. And so I pick him. Mm, that makes me feel good. So until next week, or Sunday, actually, but <laughs> let's pray. Lord, thank you that you use imperfect people. I take such comfort in that. And I thank you, God, that you... Forgive us our mistakes and our failures when we turn from them and repent and ask for your forgiveness. You heal us of the damage we cause ourselves and you help even heal the damage that we cause to others because you love us. I pray, Father, that I would have a heart that wants to follow after you. I pray for all of us that we would have a heart that wants to follow after you. Maybe we'll make a lot of mistakes. But in the end, we all will bow before your feet, willingly at the feet of our Savior. I pray, Father, that you bless the rest of our week. Have your hand upon our nation. And uh, just may you be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.